unique yet common sense opinions on sports. This is Jeff Allen Sports Talk. On this week's show, a pleasure to have a longtime former colleague and now the voice of the Texas A&M Aggies, Andrew Monaco. He is standing by in the virtual green room. He'll be here to talk about the Aggies' run to Omaha in the College World Series, the Jimbo Saban dust-up, and more. We look forward to hearing from Andrew in just a moment or two. So, the Colorado Avalanche are your Stanley Cup champions. The Tampa Bay Lightning end up short after winning two cups in a row. Could not make it a three-peat. And... Part of me, I have nothing against the Lightning, but if you're a Tampa fan, resident, all that good stuff, the Champa Bay stuff was getting a little old. So now that the Bucks and the Lightning have lost, we can retire that little deal now. (laughs) Thank you very much. And how about Freddie Freeman's return to Atlanta? The Dodger first baseman, the former Brave, getting his World Series ring on Friday night, getting to speak to the crowd. By the way of the former Braves players who were on the title team last year. He was the only one who's been given the microphone to speak. Of course, we're well worthy of that honor given his long history with the Braves. But uh, it was very tearful, very emotional. Tough night for Freddie, tough weekend in general. And I think one of the tweets I saw said it best, Freddie's still in love with his ex. (laughs) And, you know, if you're Dodger, Dodger fans, you know, you're like, Come on, dude, you play for us now. What's the deal? And interestingly enough, today uh, we are recording on Tuesday, the 28th of June. Freddie Freeman has fired his agent. (laughs) I should have done that a little sooner if you wanted to stay in Atlanta. But uh, uh, yeah, definitely he's, he's mad about how things transpired. But ultimately, at the end of the day, he had the opportunity to seize control himself. All right, now time to welcome to the program the voice of the Texas A&M Aggies and a longtime friend. It is great to have Andrew Monaco on the show. Andrew, thank you so much for being here. Jeff, thanks so much for having me. Wonderful to see you, my friend. Yes, and uh, you know, uh, you're coming off a pretty good uh, high as a broadcaster as the the Aggies uh, uh, got to Omaha to play in the College World Series and uh, uh, quite a year and, and all that. Can you encapsulate for me, you know, the, your thoughts about uh, their performance and uh, and the Omaha experience for them? The, the Omaha was outstanding, uh, just, just terrific and interesting to look through the players' eyes, the players who went there as kids tournaments in Omaha being in the seats trying to get autographs of the college baseball players they are now those college baseball players giving autographs to those kids and who knows in a decade or so if those kids will have that same experience I thought that was special this was the first year for Jim Schlossnagel here at Texas A&M he comes from TCU and it's interesting uh, some of the uh, some of the demons for the Aggies when it came to regionals and super regionals were Jim Schlossnagel teams keeping the Aggies away from Omaha more times than than just this seventh time for the Aggies. But he came here, uh, NCAA being clever like they always are, had to play TCU, 
in that regional at Olsen Field at Bluebell Park. And yet it was the Aggies who, who got that victory. So Schloss goes back there to the, to the College World Series. It just all came together. I, I heard him describe this team over the weekend. He said, it's the most imperfect, perfect team I've ever been around. And he brought in a new pitching coach in Nate Yeski, and he brought a new hitting coach in Michael Early. And obviously all the players, he brought in grad transfers, but also the players were new. But he said the one thing that we had in common is everybody wanted to be at Texas A&M. And if you had asked where this team would be, would they be in Omaha when the SEC schedule started? You would probably say no. But it really came together throughout the conference being tested every weekend. And Jeff, as you know, in the SEC, you got to win the weekend. You got to go two and one. You can't go one and two and you can't get swept. And if you can get a sweep, that's just a bonus. It all came together for him, and it was really pretty special. Yeah, so what do you think were the, the key factors and the, the, the mitigating things that allowed this team to be successful and, and make the trip to Omaha? Yeah, you know, interesting. We kept talking about everybody else's lineup in the SEC because you're so familiar with what you're watching and realizing, my good gosh, one through nine, this was as long a lineup as Texas has, has had in a long time. Just It was just a great lineup. And all the grad transfers fit and everybody kind of took that next step. I really love what Michael Worley did with, with hitting. They were very intentional. Uh, you know, it's going to sound really cliche, but you know what? You swing at strikes and you don't swing at balls. And they would be very long at bats, but get the pitch that, that they want. I, I, just, I think a, a Dylan Rock, who comes from UTSA in San Antonio, uh, uh, Jacob Polish, who comes in from Stanford, a Troy Claunch, who wore the coveted number 12 as a transfer, but he had success at Oregon State. Jack Moss, the same way at Arizona State. Cole Kaler, don't know where we'd be without him. He came from Hawaii, and we lost the left side of our infield early, our shortstop and our third baseman to injury, and Cole Kaler, who came to play second base, ended up being the shortstop this year. But they all, but they all I don't want to say bought in, but it was the right guys. I, I, Jeff, I've always said successful teams are, are, teams are puzzles, you can have teams that have really shiny puzzle pieces and look great, but they don't fit. This team fit. Uh, and it's a lineup that became relentless. Uh, and they just kind of wore you out. And, and this team, at no point did they ever think they were out of it. Uh, and then the pitching came through in the regional, the super regional. And we saw one of the great redemptions, I think, when Nathan Detmer won on that Tuesday against Notre Dame to set up the rematch with Oklahoma. He did not pitch well the very first game in Oklahoma, um, but he came back and it was probably his best start. And I just think the future is really, really bright for Texas A&M baseball. Yeah, that's for sure. So, you know, you got to look at that. You, know, you mentioned uh, Schlossnagel coming over from TCU. So I guess the old adage, you, you can't beat them, steal them. <laughs> uh, you know, so, you know, he came in. Rob Childress was there for for quite a long time, had a couple of uh, trips to Omaha under his belt as well. Um, so, you know, to come in in his first season and 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 get to the College World Series. Uh, yeah, as you say, that certainly is a, a, just another forward momentum in continuing that bright future. Yeah, he was not going to allow this to be a down year just because it was the first year. Look, they, they didn't even make the SEC tournament last year. The, the 12 of the 14 schools make that. The Aggies didn't. They had 29 wins last year, but he would, that was not going to be. He's too competitive for that. And he said that right off the bat. And he never shied away from talking about Omaha. That's the goal. And, and they came up shy. They got to the Final Four. 
but that's not enough for him. And I really, I'm looking forward to how he's going to build and very similar to basketball for me, very similar to football for me, to football, to beat Alabama, CBS's night game, right? It's, it's their doubleheader game. It's the feature game. And you beat number one at Kyle Field. And that helps all your recruiting, not, not just football. To have basketball turn a negative into a positive. So it's not the NCAA tournament, but it's the NIT. But you're one of the last teams standing and you get to that final. You turn that into a positive with your recruits. And I think it's the same thing for baseball. To be one of the final four teams in baseball, now you're watching that Texas A&M team playing in Omaha. And if there are any recruits or if there's someone who does want to transfer, say, I want to be a part of that, you absolutely use that to your advantage. And I just, I just love what, what Schloss did, did not ignore the fact it wasn't, he wasn't going to say, oh, it's a, it's a down year. He wasn't going to do that. Use that transfer portal to, to his advantage. And they were the right guys. And Buzz Williams did the same thing with basketball, bringing in a lot of younger transfers, but they all fit. And Schlaw said early, look, I've never questioned the competitive grit of this team. And then it was that competitive grit that really, I think, helped put them over the top where they felt we're not out of any game whatsoever. Yeah, and of course, you look at the teams that made the final, and of course, the Aggies had plenty of familiarity there. Uh, you know, beat Ole Miss two out of three to end the regular season in the SEC and had two tough losses to Oklahoma there in Omaha. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, the competition at that stage is, is so, so high. Uh, in the level of competition there, uh, you and you look at at Ole Miss coming away with a, with a national championship, beating beating uh, the Sooners. Uh, so I mean, you got a pretty good view of those teams, and uh, yeah. you know certainly teams that you could have have a lot of respect for. A, a, ton, a ton of respect for because all eight of them had to come through the regionals and the super regionals, and it doesn't matter. You know, you know, when the when the sixty four teams are picked, you think you have fans say, "Well, that's an easy regional." You got to be kidding me. When we're leaving out the NC states of the world and they didn't even make the final 64, uh, you know that you've got a, a competitive field. And I don't think there's any regional or super regional that's quote unquote easy. And I think they all had their stories, right? Ole Miss was one of the last teams in. And we kind of chuckle at that because if you can make it through the SEC, you got to play 10 weekend series in the SEC. And the benchmark is 500 or better. And, and it's not like that's lowering the bar. If you can go, if you can get 15 wins in the SEC, that's that's something incredible. And Ole Miss, yeah, the Aggies did beat them, but the Aggies were on that roll. But the key to Ole Miss was they had a lot of players come back instead of going to the pros or stop playing. They wanted one more year together, and I think that says a lot about Mike Bianco, and I think it says a lot about Ole Miss baseball. Oklahoma had a chip on their shoulder. They they win the Big 12 conference tournament. TCU wins the regular season. Texas didn't win anything. Texas was the only Big 12 team that was home for a regional. Oklahoma had to go to Florida. Oklahoma had to go to Blacksburg. They, they had a little chip on their shoulder. Like, how come we didn't get <laughs> home field? You had Notre Dame who felt like they were the sacrificial lamb, right? We're going to send them to Knoxville because the number one team, Tennessee, they're going to they're going to sail their way to Omaha and Notre Dame had absolutely other thoughts there. So almost like they were playing with with house money. I give Texas a ton of credit. Another long lineup, but the pitching abandoned them when they when they needed it most. But they did have a successful season. And then four teams coming out of the way, Arkansas going into the SEC tournament. Everybody was saying. 
well, where's their offense? Where there's, you're, you know, Dave Van Horn's always going to have pitching. Where's the offense? Well, the offense showed up in the regional and the super regionals, and I thought they were going to be a very tough out once you got uh, to Omaha because it was all clicking. And another team with a lot of guys who came back for one more year. And again, I think that says a lot about the state of those teams, but I think it says a lot about the state of college baseball that these guys want to want to play together. Look, I know COVID was able to expand these rosters, and at some point it's going to have to bounce back. But to have that opportunity for, for an extra season, to come back as a fifth-year season, I think really paid off for a lot of the teams that made it. Uh, Auburn was that way. Sonny Deshera had a great year, even though he wasn't with Auburn his entire career. Just a, a great addition just to see that four coming out of the SEC West, while everyone else might have been surprised, none of us in the SEC West were surprised. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and I kind of wanted to get your perspective too, because uh, you know you've called minor league baseball right here in Orlando, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Um, you know, what is the difference now? You know, from the time you called minor league baseball to where college baseball is now, as far as prospects for the big leagues. You know, how, how different is it or is it different? I first and foremost, I think doing the minor league ball then and seeing college baseball now are more equivalent now than it's ever been. And I like the style. And I say that spoiled with the managers that I had that I got to work with. But Ron Gardenhire won with two different teams in Orlando. He won with that big slugging team in, in 89. And then in 90, all those guys were gone. And he won with a different style that had to manufacture more of a, I don't want to say small ball. It wasn't that small, but he had, he had to adapt. I think that's why he was so good on the next level and really, really connected with his players. Scotty Olger, the next year wins a title and ends up as a bench coach. Um, Phil Roof comes in just, just an older gentleman uh, the old Cub, the old A, just really the fundamental part of that. And then when the Cubs come in, Tommy Jones, um, Dave Tremblay, who ends up in the major leagues, and Bruce Kim, just great managers who I think knew their players. But there was such a dichotomy at that time, Jeff, that the pros could not wait to get their hands on the college guys and shake the college out of them. And one of the differences at that time was you would have your Friday night starter would be your Sunday closer. And you would have those innings that would just build up. I, I remember John Sales saying he never should have pitched his first year out of college. Fresno State, if I'm not mistaken, his arm was dead and really needed it. I think you have now that now that the pros and there's still a dichotomy, don't get me wrong. But now I think the pros are depending a little bit more on college players, at least the hitters, because the bats are different. There's no more gorilla ball. It was gorilla ball in college um, at the time that, that I was in Orlando doing doing minor league ball in the Southern League. Now with the BB core bats, I think you get more of a feel for hitters. Um, they don't have to go exclusively to wood bat and then find out. I think you can see it a little bit more. I think the pitching is better. The Pitching was a little down this year in the SEC only because there were so many number one starters who were out with injury, which is a subject for another time. We've got <laughs> baseball got to uh, take care of that. But it's, it's funny. You'd say, oh, wow, we got rid of this starter. And all of a sudden you have someone coming out of the pen who may be as good or better. That's what you see a lot in the SEC. But I think because now there's fewer rounds in the major league draft, I think they're depending more on college. And these guys in three years 
playing for pick a coach, right? Playing for Jim Schlossnagel for three years, you know, is going to be fundamentally sound. You can look and see at the players that he sent from TCU. You can see the, the pitchers that Nate Yeski has sent from where he has been and Michael Early, where he has been. And then insert coach here. I think it's the quality of the instruction. I still think they're a little bit separate. I still think pros love to get their hands on pitchers when they are younger, but I don't, th- I don't think we're seeing as much tired arms at the end. Look, college coaches, they keep their jobs by how many wins they get, not all the players that they send to the pros, things like that. But I, I think they're working a little more in concert, although the, the draft is something I think they still need to look at. It's not conducive right now for college because the draft has gone later. They never liked it before because it was right during Super Regionals into um, uh, Omaha into the College World Series, and you would have some guys playing on a Monday night in what would be the deciding game in a super regional being drafted. And I sometimes felt like that was too much of a story in the college world series. Oh, he was drafted by the Padres. He was drafted by the Rays. He was drafted by something like that. They were going to move the draft to Omaha actually, uh, and do it at the end of the super regionals in the college world series COVID hit. And they never did that major league baseball, then moved it to the all-star break, the major league baseball, all-star break. The problem with that is that comes later in July. July 1, you have to have your scholarship set for the next year for college. So they're not working hand in hand with one another. And it makes it a little more difficult about who's coming back. You don't know who's coming back. You don't know who's going to transfer, things like that. So um, Major League Baseball is going to do what's best for them. um, But college is going to have to adjust. Even with all that said, I still think they work a little bit more in concert because I think the college players were after those three years. Look, if you're a first or second rounder, you got to go out of high school. That's that's the opportunity. But if you're not, spend three years, quality program, you really give yourself a, a, a head start. You're not going to play in low A or, or rookie ball. You're giving yourself a head start and you can really, really have a good career. Yeah, and I think that brings up the you know consistency factor. You because know, if you do play three years for one guy versus you know you go to you know low A ball or go to the next level, you're not you're not with the same group of people all the time. So I think that that's a great point that yeah having you that consistency have, there. And you don't have a scholarship once you go to low A, right? Yeah. Now it's <laughs> now it's based on performance. It's like you know what is it? You get you get drafted on potential, but you stay on performance, right? But then through three years of college, if you're with a successful program, that's 60, 65, 70 games on tape that these scouts can look at against quality pitching. You can see what kind of defense you play. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Um, But again, you're that bonus, baby. Oh, you got to take it. But if (laughs) but if you're not, you have a chance to put yourself in that position two or three years down the line. Yeah, outstanding. So, uh, you know, you brought it up earlier, you know, the the great uh, victory over Alabama during the football season. You had a tremendous uh, game winning call that uh, got circulated around quite a bit. Uh, you know, and of course, you know, we had this little uh, little skirmish in the offseason verbal uh, jousting between uh, Nick Saban, Alabama and Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. So I wanted to kind of get your perspective from the A&M side of things, you know, based on, you know, what Saban said about, uh, you know, the NIL with with Texas A&M and all that and and the and the back and forth that went between them two. So what was your perspective and all that uh, from the from the angle you get to see it from? Jimbo was not going to allow Nick Saban to let that narrative out there unchallenged. You don't, don't. The, the first thing I saw after Jimbo's 
quick press conference. <laughs> it was that morning after Nick said it that night was from a former player DeMarvin Leal, who was drafted by the Steelers saying, that's my coach. And that's exactly what it was. Um, Jimbo and Nick are former colleagues or colleagues, coaching colleagues, but they were together at LSU for a long time. And I love to hear the stories of those two very competitive, but you do not challenge the integrity. You do not challenge the character. You do not challenge what A&M is doing and you do not challenge his players like that. Everybody's on a level playing field now with NIL. And I understand what Nick wanted to say. I think he was saying it to his boosters and the high tides program, which is what Alabama has. It came out wrong. And it rubbed Jimbo the wrong way, and he was not going to take it. Now, I'm also going to say this. Lane Kiffin popped off earlier, even before Nick Saban said something. And I don't think Jimbo was very happy. And I think Mike Leach made a comment earlier. The thing that makes me chuckle is Greg Sankey doesn't come out until after Jimbo's comments. Why not after Nick Saban's comments? But Jimbo was not going to allow it to go unchallenged. He's just not. The thing that makes me laugh, and again, I know Texas A&M has not had a number one recruiting class. I get it. But Jimbo's been in the top five since he's been here. Jimbo's had number one classes at Florida State and won national championships. That conveniently gets left out of the conversations. It's the thing that always makes me chuckle. Uh, the the storyline of, well, none of Saban's assistants have beaten Nick Saban. I totally get it. Now there's two losses because of Jimbo and Kirby Smart. But Jimbo won a national champ. One of Nick's assistants won a national championship when Nick and Alabama didn't even make the final four. That was Jimbo at Florida State. So it's, it's new for Texas A&M. It's not new for what Jimbo Fisher has done. And I think Jimbo just said, you know what? I'm not going to allow someone else to set this narrative. Look, he had to address twice that he was going to LSU, all the rumors, when he came out and said he wasn't going. Courtney, his wife, came out and said, we're not going. Then Jimbo had to sit down a second time at a press conference and say, I'm not going. It's this types, It's these types of things that, you know what, if he's going to have to address him, he's going to have to address him. He thought Nick was out of line. He said it. Look, he said last year at the Houston Touchdown Club, when, when asked, what, do you want, what are you going to do when you play Alabama? He said, you know, we're, we're, we're going to beat their tail. What else is he supposed to say? <laughs> we're going to keep it within two scores? That's not, that's not Jimbo Fisher. And, and I think after what he said, I think, you have recruits saying, that's my coach. You have players saying, that's my coach. You've got former players saying, that's my coach. You've got players who never played for Jimbo saying, that's, that's my coach. I, I think it was a, you know, a great thing. He's always said, look, they're not going to give you one of those chairs at the table in the Final Four. You have to go wrestle that chair, kick one of those teams out. That's what he is building here at Texas A&M. And to me, it was just one thing. If you've ever wondered, is he, you know, he signs a 10-year deal. After four years, he gets re-upped to make it another 10 years because director of athletics Ross Bjork said it's a nice round number. But, but he is here. He is an absolute Aggie. And this just showed you, you know, the loyalty that he has and, and just the way he is not going to back down from anybody. And it doesn't matter if it's Nick Saban or not. Look, they won titles together. He's coached against him. He knows how good he is. But he knows that this team is coming and they're going to they're going to be someone that, that you're going to have to account for. Yeah. Wanted to get your thoughts, of course, on the complicated world of college football now, you know, with the transfer portal, with NIL. You know, you know, I think if the transfer portal first popped open, you know, then all of a sudden NIL comes in and that becomes a factor in the transfer portal to a lot of degree. Um, 
are there ways you think these complications can be addressed? Because it, there does seem to, it, it seems to cause a lot of fluctuation. Uh, it, Jeff, it feels right now like we're in the wild west, doesn't it? And I think <laughs> at some point uh, there's going to have to be some rules, I, I think. But there's also these, these made up scenarios and made up numbers by people who aren't involved. Look, the, the NIL is part of that. The school's you have boosters who can put money to the to the NIL that that's going to happen. And you also have your boosters who are going to put money into facilities and all of that. So there's there's that part of it. There are why are guys transferring is a question. Are you running away from something or are you running to something for so long? Anybody who wanted to transfer was was getting that waiver. And even even folks in compliance would joke and say, well, you know what? Just give them one free transfer. Now we have it. What, what did everybody say? Well, if coaches can go, players should go. Now players go. I don't want to hear those same player, people saying, well, the players shouldn't be able to do this. They, they, they got what they wanted. It is now part of the recruiting process in a number of different ways. You still get your high school recruits. You would have to look in the portal the same way that you would look at junior college, but now transferring from other schools. And once again, you get more of an idea of, uh, of a player, can he play on whatever level that is? Again, you've got you've got tape on him. But I think you also have to have a personnel department. I think you have to constantly be recruiting your own players, wanting them to stay. And I, and and that that's it. I think for all the sports now, I think you need to have that personnel department. I mean, we are in Omaha, and yet some of our analytics guys are combing the transfer port what in what should be the best moment right you still have to make sure you've got the transfer portal and you're still going through official visits or unofficial visits or someone saying we're going to this we're going to go visit this school and you have jim schlossnagel saying yeah we're in omaha right now why don't you want to come see us you know you have to do that or as soon as he lands you get back in that recruiting it seems like it's year round but um, again, I, some of the money that's being thrown around is pretty fantastic. I don't think, uh, you know, whoever is writing that has an accurate description of that. Um, I, I think it is good. Look, when you have a player commit to a school, obviously, sometimes it's not going to be a great fit. Now, is it because it wasn't what the player thought it was going to be? Is it because a coach lied? Is it because I don't know? I don't think whatever the rules are, that's ever going to change. But I think it really focuses on, I don't think it's a bad thing if, if a guy sees that he's not going to play to go, to go play somewhere. But what's the reason? Do you not want to compete? Well, that's a red flag then for the next school uh, for him. Or maybe it's, you know, if there are certain guys, maybe they have to go home or want to get closer to home because of family, something like that. I, I, I get all the circumstances there. Um, but it does. It affects your recruiting. You, you do. It's 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 closer to pro, I think, than any time in that you have your team. You're always you're combing through other teams. The superstars or the great players are always going to find a home. I'm going to feel bad because we're going to get to that day in all the sports where the guys at the end of that spectrum have nowhere else to go. And maybe they have to jump back to to Juco, something like that. But no, I, I still think there's things that that have to be written. And I'm wondering if we're going to get all of the input of all sides, which I think would really be smart from presidents and ADs and coaches and even players and guys who have gone through 
uh, the portal, things like that to see how we can, how we can make this the best. Cause I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Yeah. You're definitely right about the wild West and, the, and it gets a little dusty sometimes <laughs> that's, that's for sure. So uh, I wanted to get your take on something too, because, you know, you are the voice of a major university and two legends here in the state of Florida retiring in the same year, Gene Deckerhoff, Florida state, Vic Hubert at the university of Florida guys, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, Give me your your since you've been doing this a while at Texas A&M now, you know, what is what do you feel as a responsibility to being the voice uh, of a college university and, and the impact that you can have? You know, someone called this a legacy job, and I hadn't put it in perspective like that. Um, you represent A&M and obviously the student athletes. And, and, and that's really what's been cool is to be able to tell their stories and to be in some of the biggest venues and the best games on a Saturday or to, to be at the tournaments, to be in Omaha and representing to me, it's all, it's, it's something special. It's a reason why I left the Spurs to come to something like that. Look, Mick Hubert there 33 years, Dave South here in Texas A&M 33 years. Gene was there a long time. You don't get these jobs don't open up every other day. <laughs> you know? They really are something special. I've always joked that I don't know who's next here at Texas A&M, but he or she's going to have to wait an awful long time because I'm not giving this baby up either. No, you do. You, re- you represent more than just the team that you are doing it. Somehow it's bigger. Like it's really special. Um, after a seven overtime game against LSU, when you know that you are not part of something special that night, but then it becomes a part of history and then it becomes legend and it becomes lore. And whether it's a, um, a student athlete breaking a school record or things like that, I just to to know that I will always be part of those big moments Really, you you sit back and you. I think it's why you don't want to mess it up, right? <laughs> um, but but you, uh, to me, it's an honor to be a part of all these accomplishments. One, I'd be watching anyway. But, but two, to to be a part of it is is to me, it's a responsibility. And it's also something to me at this point in my career, something very very special. Yeah, and you know, of course the uh, the other analogy of you know you become you know, an extended part of people's families because these yeah. uh, fan bases are so large and, and, and they identify, you, you know, they yeah. hear your voice, they identify with you and your school. I, I have said this, you know, like someone like Mick, someone like Gene, they're the soundtrack of generations, right? All the big moments, Gene's attached to those, Mick's attached to those. And I don't think they've ever forgotten that. And, and I think you walk that fine line. I don't think it was ever about them, it wasn't about Gene. It wasn't about Mick. It was about that student athlete. And I, and, and that came through. And there, see, to me, there's a joy to all of this. I, I joke with all my partners. I say, look, we've got the best seats in the house and they pay us to do this. It doesn't get any better than that. Right. Um, and, and I think you, you certainly hope that that joy comes through. It's hard to be next to my partner in football when we blow a fourth quarter late. I'm, I'm thinking specifically in my first year, we're at Auburn and the Aggies lose the game in the, in the fourth quarter. And I said, I'm only going to ask you once because he was devastated. And I said, what's it like? What's it like to be a player and go through that? And then I did not bring that up to him again. I just wanted that one. It was, it was, it was kind of raw, but there was no one better to answer that in our booth than Dave Elmendorf as much, as much as that hurt. 
And then you have the joy. Jeff, there's a game where we're behind 9 nothing to South Carolina in baseball, and I have coached Mark Johnson two coaches ago. It was Mark uh, replaced by Rob Childress and, and now Jim Schlossnagel. And the team comes back and wins 13-12 to 12 on a walk-off. And we call it Olsen Magic at Olsen Field. And as you're describing the two-run home run by Brett Minnick and winning 13-12, to 12, coach is next to me and he's having a hard time talking. He's that emotional. He's got tears in his eyes watching the Aggies. Like that, those are the things... Like, I love the two-run home run, but it is magnified by having coach next to me, that emotional and that joy. Or to hear him then talk, we have our dugout microphone, the headset. We talk with those players, and for him to, you know, it's not really an interview, but him talking to the players and, and the respect that they have, talking to coach about that. To, to have John Thornton, who played here, coached here, uh, assistant coach, interim AD at Texas A&M, be by my side through the run through the NIT, through the SEC tournament in Tampa, and then through the NIT, and to have him experience what's going on. See, I think they all wanted, I think they all wanted to, in my first year, hey, what's it like? They're kind of seeing the game through my eyes because I'm the new guy and everything is new and I'm just enjoying it, still enjoying it. Now to see the success through their eyes is really something is is something special. And that's never lost on me. That's never lost that these are the Aggies. These are the guys who who played and coached and they're the legends, even though I'm not allowed to use that word around them. But they, <laughs> they are the legends and the highs are a little higher and the lows are a little lower. But uh, love sharing those moments with them. Yeah. You know, and I think the other great aspect you have, I mean, other than working in a network, you know, you're getting to call multiple sports. You know, you're not just locked in. Usually when you work for a team, you're doing NBA and that's it. Uh, other than maybe a few side ventures, but uh, mm. that's gotta be, that's gotta be exciting for you to be able to, to, to change your scenery and do different sports throughout the course of the year. Yeah, it's a blast. It's funny. We, I would be gone with basketball on a Friday and a Saturday. We travel on a Friday and then play on a Saturday. I'd be back and I would tell Jim Schloss and I go, Hey, I'll be here on Sunday. I really want to be here, but basketball is on the road, this and that. And he stopped me. He said, Andrew, I want basketball to win too. <laughs> I'm like, oh, the overlap can get um, hectic, but it's so much fun to um, do a game on Saturday, hop on a plane, and then you're doing a, a basketball tournament in Las Vegas and then get back for LSU on the next Saturday. That overlap of football and basketball. And then in basketball, the NIT ended on a Thursday. I hopped on a plane. I was in Alabama for baseball on Friday, and all anybody wanted to talk about was basketball, which I thought was really cool because these teams all know one another. Or the basketball team would say, hey, how's baseball doing? And they're throwing out the first pitch, things like that. Like I love that overlap of the two sports and how the, I think the student-athletes absolutely appreciate what, what one another do. But as busy as it is, I wouldn't want it any other way. And you're right. I, I like I like the change. You, you can get caught in just one. And again, love the time in the NBA. There's nothing like a run to a title, especially around uh, San Antonio, where they just embrace it. Uh, and it's fun. But that you watch the College World Series from afar going, man, that would really be fun to be a part of it. Or you watch a bowl game from afar saying, wow, that would be cool. Yeah, they are to do this. People always ask me, do you miss being with the Spurs? Do you miss being with the Magic? Yes, I do. And I miss the people. So how cool is it every time we go to Kentucky, 
Goose is always there. Jack Evans is always like, hey, we've got to get together. Like you get those relationships. I miss I miss the people more than anything, not always the games. And again, the highs to win championships, four of them while I was there in, in San Antonio. That That is just so special. Um, but it, to me, someone was saying you're having the time of your life. I was like, yeah, I absolutely am. This, this is a great time to be at Texas A&M. Yeah. And you get paid to do it too. It's, uh, it's just a bonus. Hey, us, Jeff. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> that is awesome. See, um, I'd say I do it for free, but I don't like to say that out loud because someone <laughs> just might. <laughs> yeah. My, my, one of my favorites out of all this is, and, and David Steele told me a long time ago, this is so much fun, right? He said, there's going to come a day where someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and say, okay, playtime is over. He said, I'm just going to get out of my chair and go. And I know exactly what he's saying. It's like, you just take advantage of this for as long as possible. Just enjoy every single moment. Well, I started that part of the conversation talking about, uh, uh, you know, Gene Deckerhoff and Mick Hubert. And, you know, not to say that I'm old, but, you know, I had two different times in my radio career. I was studio engineer for, uh, for a football broadcasts for FSU in Florida yeah. in, two, in two different times. So I've got to work with these guys uh, a little bit, even though it was, you know, I'm sitting in a, in a box in the studio and, and they're at, at a game site. Um, but, you know, again, you're familiar with these guys. Can you give me uh, give me your thoughts on, on each of them as far as, you know, uh, the, their, their greatness in, in, in sports broadcasting? You know, I, I just, I just, you know, I always say it's hard to replace somebody, but we're all replaceable. Like I, that's the two, it's the two, it's the two ways there, but I mean, it, it's going to be different on a Saturday listening to Florida state and not hearing Gene. Now we'll still hear him for the bucks. I don't know how he did that schedule. by the way. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and the same thing with Mick again, it's so identifiable. And, and, and what is hard is the, the legacies that they leave again for generations and People know that that was my Saturday was listening to Mick and the, and the greatness of all the, uh, again, the highs of the Gators. Like it, it's funny in San Antonio working with Matt Bonner. Uh, and then we had David Lee uh, on the team and Udonis Haslam would come in with Miami and then, you know, here it is. And it's like, Oh, let's take a picture for Mick. Right. And, and then like, okay, I'll send it to him. Uh, no problem. You know, to, to be surrounded by that. Again, my key is I, I, those guys never they had the personalities that were large, but not so large that it was all about them just to be attached to that. Mick talks about, you know, what, what gets lost is the relationships with coaches. I'll tell you that a relationship with Mick after he replaces David, who comes to the to the magic. Dennis is doing radio. And I had the opportunity to fill in for Sunshine Network at those games. And I told Mick this because we were able to do some Zooms during COVID. And they tried to fit 14 SEC announcers who weren't doing games into a Zoom. And two hours in, we all answered like one question because we hadn't talked and we hadn't been together. <laughs> it wasn't a great idea, but we had a blast together. <laughs> but I was able to tell Mick that here I am as a quote unquote outsider. And yet he was absolutely welcoming to me. At every Gator game that I did for Sunshine, it was always, how can I help you with this? And I always appreciated that. He never looked at me as the outsider. It was always, hey, you're here. You're doing these broadcasts. Never envious or anything like that. 
And I always appreciated that. And then to be able to listen to him and the craft, because I truly believe there is a craft to our business. And he had it down pat. Same thing with Gene. They just have it down pat. But I don't think they ever took it for granted. You had the feeling with both of those guys that that was the best game on a Saturday afternoon, on a Saturday night. It could be on a Tuesday night. It could have been a non-conference. But at no point did you ever hear them sound bored. That's where they wanted to be. And and that always translated. And, And you know what? Listeners can hear that. They can hear when you want to be there. And when you don't, and I don't think it ever got old for them. And again, to be at two schools with an an awful lot of success, to have rivalry games, to have big games, bowl games, but it's not like Mick was his best in the orange bowl. It's not like Gene was the best just in the bowl. They were at their best every single game. And and that's what I appreciate, but it was the friendship of Mick. And, and, you know, then like I, I, my text to him was, why are you getting out? I just got in. I don't want you to leave. And we had a great conversation in, you know, in Tampa, not realizing that that would be the last time that I would talk to him as a colleague. I, look, I'm thrilled for him. Now, you know, I know he's got the place in, in Sarasota. I, I'm thrilled because, Jeff, you know, we don't always make the decision of when it's over. <laughs> and, and he does. And the, and the same thing for Gene. But to me, just the soundtrack of, 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 of generations of, you know, when you, when you say Gene Deckerhoff, you're saying Seminoles. And when you say Mick, you're saying Gators. They're just, um, they're forever going to be aligned. And I also think that they are going to help whoever comes in. Jeff Kuhane in, in Florida State, don't know in, in, in Florida who gets that job. One, they're great jobs, but I think they're going to make it as smooth as possible for what's next. I know someone said to me, oh, you're replacing Dave South. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm succeeding. I'm just next. You never replace someone like that. I am just very fortunate to be next because for those 33 years he was here and the 35 years when you add, add the baseball, again, that relationship between team broadcaster, voice of whomever, and, and a listener is something special. Hmm. That's great stuff. And as always, I appreciate you taking the time uh, to be on the program and uh, share your thoughts about uh, what's going on there in Aggie land and, and beyond. Andrew, thanks again. Thank you, Jeff. And now let's close things out with a TV theme. The theme to Gary show. The theme to Gary show. Gary called me up and asked if I would write his theme song. I'm almost halfway finished. How do you like it so far? How do you like the theme to Gary show? The theme to Gary show. The opening theme to Gary show. This is the music that you hear as you watch the credits. We're almost to the part. That's certainly one of the quirkiest TV themes of all time. It's from It's Gary Shandling Show. And that was initially broadcast on Showtime from September 1986 to May 1990, created by Gary Shandling and Alan Zwiebel, the series notable for Breaking the Fourth Wall. Gary Shandling, of course, plays himself a neurotic, sardonic stand-up comedian who just happens to be aware that he is a television sitcom character, spending just as much time interacting with the studio audience as he does the regular cast members. 
doing monologues, show closing summations of the episode's events, and on Gary's show, all the supporting characters also know they are on a TV show, not just Gary, and the studio audience is often in the storyline. This show, a very good show, by the way, considered a critical and niche success. 72 episodes on the air again, as we said, for four seasons. Later picked up by Fox from 1988 to 1990 as part of its Sunday night lineup, Minor cuts for language and advertising breaks. They began airing the show from the beginning, but because longer seasons uh, for network shows versus cable, they had caught it by the time the show left Fox in March of 1990. New episodes continued a few months thereafter on Showtime. And of course, that series really helped springboard Shandling and prompted the success for his run as Larry Sanders on The Larry Sanders Show, where, of course, he played a late-night TV talk show host. It's Gary Shaling's show, our TV theme for this weekend. With that, we are done here. Thanks for listening to Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Follow Jeff on Twitter at JeffAllen underscore 88, on Facebook at JeffAllen88, and the website JeffAllenSportsTalk.com. And you can reach out to the show anytime by email, JeffAllenSportsTalk at gmail.com. Jeff Allen Sports Talk is brought to you exclusively by Kramer's Salve for Dogs. Does your dog itch, suffer from debilitating skin allergies, or trouble hot spots? We have the solution using the healing power of neem. Kramer's Salve is a safe and natural approach to help your best friend live an itch-free life. Go to KramerSalve.net to order today with new low pricing. That's K-R-A-M-E-R-S-A-L-V-E dot net.